Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. I'm Patty Schlonsky, partner in charge of the Cleveland office at Ulmer & Byrne, but much more importantly, I'm vice president of the City Club's board of directors. And I'm pleased to introduce today's forum, a conversation on equity and access to public spaces. Today's forum is part of One Community Reads, a countywide collaboration of our nine public library systems, Playhouse Square, and the City Club. One Community Reads is a countywide book club where we invite the entire community to read and engage with the same book. The book is Palaces for the People, How Social Infrastructure Can Help Fight Inequality, Polarization, and the Decline of Civic Life by Eric Kleinenberg. Since January, most library branches in the county have been presenting book clubs and panel conversations on these issues, and today's forum is one of our contributions to the conversation. All of this culminates next Monday, March 9th, with an appearance by Eric Kleinenberg at a free event at the Mimi Ohio Theater in Playhouse Square. So if you haven't gotten your tickets, you might want to do that. In Palaces for the People, author Eric Kleinenberg shares how the resilience of communities can be found not just in shared values, but in shared spaces, such as libraries, childcare centers, playgrounds, and gardens that enable life-transforming human interactions. But while the book extols the virtues of free, shared community spaces, it begs the question, who are these spaces designed for? By definition, public spaces are meant to be open, inclusive, and democratic, but today we see physical, social, and economic barriers, both in Cleveland and in urban centers across the country, that challenge the true nature of public space, economic issues, social and cultural segregation, huge real estate investments, privatization trends, and gentrification. As these inequalities persist, and in some cases widen, how can we ensure public spaces in Cleveland are designed for and by the people who will use them? Today, we've assembled a group of local voices representing community activism, government, philanthropy, and nonprofits, all working towards achieving equity in public spaces. Guiding today's conversation is IdeaStream reporter and producer Justin Glanville. Prior to his current role with IdeaStream, he was the founder of Sidewalk, a reviving, revolving collaborative of writers, producers, designers, artists, and urban planners working with nonprofits and foundations who want to better understand the needs and hopes of the people they serve. As an urban planner, he previously worked for Land Studio in Cleveland. As a journalist and writer, he previously worked for the Associated Press in New York. His work has appeared on Studio 360 with Kurt Anderson, in The Plain Dealer, The Architect's Newspaper, and Planning Magazine. Mr. Glanville, I turn the forum over to you to introduce our esteemed panel. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, welcome everyone. Thank you so much for coming. It's great to see so many uh, familiar faces out there. 
Um, so um, this panel is about, is called We, um, the Public Space. And um, as the opening remarks said, it's really inspired by the book Palaces for the People, um, which is um, a book that talks about something called social infrastructure. Um, and that's a term that the author uses to describe all kinds of shared free spaces, parks, um, third spaces like coffee shops, uh, daycare centers, schools, um, and how a neighborhood's access to those places really improves the quality of life for the people who live there. Um, but what we're here today to talk about, oh, and you know, and just in, in, by way of review, like some of the things he says that the ways that we benefit from those spaces are that um, those spaces help reduce social isolation and crime, they improve people's mental and physical health, they help us live longer, um, come together in, in times of crisis. So, um, and that's regardless, by the way, of a neighborhood's median income. So um, low and high income neighborhoods that have good social infrastructure are more resilient, is what the author found. Um, but we're here today to explore sort of um, side questions, which are, in Cleveland, where are these spaces? I'm um, looking at the panel here. Uh, and uh, how are we designing them? And how are people accessing them? Are, are people finding them useful? Um, so I'm going to give a real quick introduction to all the panelists, and then I'm going to ask them a question that will allow them to expound on, their, um, on themselves a little bit as well. Um, so I'm joined today by Nelson Beckford, who is the program director for Neighborhood Revitalization and Engagement at the Cleveland Foundation. Sitting next to him is Jess Jessica Fox Gift, who is the manager of Parks and Recreation Research and Planning with the City of Cleveland Mayor's Office of Capital Projects. I'm not gonna try to pronounce all the letters after That's your name, fine. Jessica. Okay. <laughs> and then Julian Kahn is an organizer with Neighborhood Connections and curator of hashtag a greater Buckeye. And Chanel Smith-Wiggum is the state director for the Trust for Public Land. Um, all right, so my esteemed panel here. Um, so um, I'd like to start off, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> That's cool. I know. I know. It's a powerhouse panel, yeah. It's a power. So I wanted to just start out by asking each of you, and we'll start with Julian. Um, how did you come to this topic of access to public space? Why is it important for you personally? Um, well, <laughs> I didn't find it. I felt like it found me. Um, um, I, I worked for the library for 20 years, you know, so I understood the, the yeah. <laughs> Shout out to the library. Yeah, but just kind of uh, living in one of these palaces for the people, right, seemingly. Um, you just kind of understand what those spaces can be and how they can be deeply transformative for people who are in the neighborhood, just accessing resources or whatnot. I mean, just creating space for that is just super important, you know, and when you're living in the neighborhood that you're working in and this and that, then you kind of catch these kids that, uh, you know, outside of the library operational hours, what are they doing, right? So it really... Um, it really just drove home the, the power and the importance of those spaces and the resources that we extended to everyone. Great. Yeah. Chanel, how about you? Uh, my story to this place into uh, Parks for People was really interesting. Um, but I grew up in a small town in Ohio, uh, Lima, Ohio. Some of you may know it, you may not know it. Um, but Cleveland is home for me right now, in particular Glenville. 
Uh, but I grew up in a neighborhood that um, necessarily was next to a park, but it was also next to a petrochemical plant. Mm -hmm. And so I literally know what it means to live in a community where you're sort of afraid to go outside. Um, the smells, the sounds, and everything sort of prevented me from being outdoors. So my mom is always surprised um, that I care about people getting outdoors um, because I grew up keeping my big wheel, big wheel in the basement of our house and not outside. Um, and that had long-term health implications for myself and my sister. And so I became extremely passionate um, and I'm dedicated, I've dedicated my life to make sure that kids don't grow up the way that I did in that sort of environment. Great, uh, Jessica, how about you? Uh, my story's a little different. I was fortunate enough to uh, have access to parks and green space and it was part of my childhood. Um, so I kind of firsthand uh, understand uh, the role that parks and rec play um, in kind of creating well-rounded individuals and you know we can say that these spaces are just for recreation and for fun but but really I mean parks and recreation and what we do can save lives mm -hmm. and these truly create democratic inclusive safe spaces for everybody and I think that that's a valid and just thing to show up every day and do um, so I feel honored that I get to sit with the city and help make these resources and opportunities available to our to our residents. Great. Nelson, how about you? So hard to follow these guys. So I would go <laughs> actually even further back um, as a, a newcomer to the United States and when I was eight years old many, many years ago, um, where I grew up in Queens, we did not have a backyard in my house. So where we played was a neighborhood park. So that's where I got <laughs> to know um, the other kids in my neighborhood. So it was more of a utility to actually develop friendships. And I was a very um, overactive kid, so it was also a good way to burn energy. So that's where it started. It sounds like you passed it on to your son as well, right? <laughs> but we'll talk about that later, okay. Um, so Nelson, if I could stick with you for a minute. Um, you shared with me a study from, was it 1917 or 1920? Yeah, it was so 1920. Cleveland has been kind of looking into this and studying this issue of social infrastructure or public spaces and what's the quality of our social infrastructure and public spaces for a long time. Um, and you shared with me a study that I think you've been nerding out on a little yeah, bit lately. Yeah. Um, geeking, geeking. geeking out on, okay, you prefer that, okay. <laughs> And uh, it's really amazing, because this was a study of exactly what Eric Klinenberg is talking about. It was a study of where are our parks, where are our playgrounds. It looked at public baths. So at the time the study was written, there were four public baths in Cleveland. And Clevelanders took a total of half a million public baths a year back then. Yeah. Um, there was a statistic in there. Um, yeah, yeah, things have changed a little yeah, since yeah, then. Yeah, that's right, that's right. We're not going to talk about coronavirus. Okay, wait, all right. Um, so, you know, I, so what's, what stands out to you about that report and kind of where we're coming from okay. as a city from 100 years ago? It's, it's fascinating. So I want to acknowledge some members of the Cleveland Foundation. So in, in the um, 1920, the Cleveland Foundation published a recreational study, a study of recreational access in the city of Cleveland. What's relevant today was that the study identified how in some parts of our city, and you'll guess what parts of our city, the recreational amenities were subpar. Um, and that, to me, is something we're addressing, still addressing today. Um, and the report, the report was commissioned because the board and staff of the foundation felt as though recreation was a public good, that it shouldn't require um, paying to experience the natural features and the recreational assets of our city. 
So it was. Yeah, and 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 correct me if I'm wrong, but it, I think the report said there were only two parks that really worked well for the neighborhoods they were in. Correct. Right. We were just talking about that in the um, in the green room. The two parks were Lincoln Park in Tremont and Fairview Park in Ohio City, which actually is the park they raised my kid in. And the report talked about how those parks were so important to the well-being of those neighborhoods. And if you live in those neighborhoods, they still are the heartbeats of those neighborhoods. So, And again, it called out how the east side was lacking an iconic park like Fairview and Lincoln Park. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so we've been, we've been kind of looking into this for a while. Um, flash forward 100 years, um, Chanel, the Trust for Public Land just put out a study at the end of last year mm -hmm. that was looking at park equity in the city of Cleveland. Mm -hmm. And um, what that report said was that um, in order to increase access for more people living in the city where they're living within a 10-minute walk of a high-quality public space, there were five neighborhoods that, that the report recommended we put parks in. Mm -hmm. And you might want to talk about that, but the report was also really interesting because it kind of gave some overall statistics for the city in terms of where we are in our public space. It said that on average, our, you know, our average public park size is about three acres. On average, we invest about $105 per capita in our public parks per year. And we have six basketball hoops per 100,000 residents, which I thought was an interesting metric too. Um, do you want to kind of talk us through some of those stats a little bit? And, yeah. and how does Cleveland compare to other yeah. cities in that? All right, so let's loose it up and get into it, right? All right. <laughs> I'm ready. I've been ready since this morning. Um, so, you know, here's the thing about the Trust for Public Land. Um, we are a national organization. We work on parks across the country. Um, and we believe that parks are for people, for all the things that you all read in the book and we all understand and agree on on this panel. Um, but one of the things that we need to understand in Cleveland is, you know, what is the status of our city parks? Um, and I'm talking about city of Cleveland proper, neighborhood parks. So if you live in Buckeye, what's going on with your park? If you live in Camp Corner, Camp's Corner, what's going on in your park? And so we took it upon ourselves to work with the city to do an analysis to understand where are the 10-minute walk gaps in our community. Because at the Trust for Public Land, and I would say Mayor Jackson agrees because he signed onto the campaign, is that people should live within a 10-minute walk of a high-quality park. And so what does that look like? And so we did an analysis to look at census tracts to see where are the biggest gaps. Um, some of the gaps are um, in the Clark Fulton neighborhood um, and not necessarily where uh, Metro Health is focusing on um, expanding their campus, but close closer uh, to, I guess, you West 53rd and Clark, um, Old Brooklyn, um, Cam's Corner, uh, Union Miles. And what's interesting about some of these uh, census tracts is that they may have a city park in them or they may be close to a metro parks, but if I'm living in my, in my home and I'm trying to walk to that park, it's difficult for me to get to that park. And so how can we work with the city, with metro parks or others to close that particular gap? Um, when it compares to other cities, um, City of Cleveland spends about $105 per person, um, public and private dollars when it comes to park investments. Cincinnati spends almost $200. Mm. So they are double, double us in spending and they're ranked number seven in the country in the top 100 cities when it comes to park quality and park access. Cleveland is not doing bad, we're number 37, um, and the city is making major strides. To me, the question is, how do we come together collectively and systematically solve this problem of the 10-minute walk gap? Mm -hmm. um, and that's hoping, I'm hoping what we leave this conversation today with us figuring out how we can do that together. And why 10 minutes, Chanel? What's, why is that kind of the magic number? 
So 10 minutes is the, is the magic number um, for lots of reasons. Um, 10 minutes, uh, we want everything to be within a 10 minute walk, not just parks, um, getting to the grocery store, going to the library, um, anything that you wanna do related to social infrastructure, 10 minutes is sort of like the planning parameter when it, uh, when it comes to that. I'm not a planner, I'm a community <laughs> organizer. Um, but as someone who lives in Glenville and purposely bought a house there, um, everything that I need is within um, 10 minutes of my particular neighborhood. Okay, all right, great. Uh, Jessica Fox Gift um, from the city of Cleveland. Um, I'm supposed to say people's full names every once in a while because we're on the radio, in case you're just turning in. Um, so it's no secret that in Cleveland, you know, we've, we've struggled with some equity issues for a long time. Um, we're a pretty segregated city and region. Um, where are we now in terms of, you know, trying to overcome some of, of that? Like, how are, we, um, how are we doing with giving people who maybe traditionally haven't had as much access to public spaces, young people, people of color, I've read women sometimes feel not as included in public spaces, the elderly, where are we kind of in terms of giving them more access to public spaces? Absolutely. So, Josh Chanel kind of pointed out, Cleveland's not doing bad. Uh, we're actually doing pretty, pretty well. We're at 82% of our residents within a 10-minute walk. Um, however, not all of those parks are probably worth walking to, right? So that is something that we're addressing. Um, we have a, a pretty robust uh, assessment plan that we go through. Happens every three years where we actually put feet on the ground into all of our parks. Um, and we come up with a prioritization plan for that that is led with equity. Um, there is no wards on this plan, there are no street addresses, we go where the need is. And so we are in our fourth year of that plan at this point. We have completely rebuilt from the ground up 10 brand new parks. We've invested a uh, little over $10 million over the last three years. We have a capital improvement plan uh, that strategically uh, puts investment into parks uh, to kind of help with the overall quality and condition associated with that park. Um, just having the access to 10 minutes doesn't, uh, we just want to make sure that we're making sure that the, the quality that people are walking to uh, fits the bill. And Chanel pointed out that we're number 37 this 35. year. 35. What were we four years ago, 42? Yep. So, so, we're, so we're getting better, right? Yeah. Um, so, so we are improving. Um, it's, it's a slow process. There's no quick answers. Um, but we are putting those processes in place and, and that level of investment, hopefully, that's being seen throughout the city uh, to, to increase access and the quality and conditions associated with our parks. Can you give us an example of a, a new park sure. that the city's built recently and what you like about it? Sure. Uh, Glenview Park uh, came uh, on board. It was actually out of our first funding year. We funded that in 2017. I think I ended up building it in 2018, ribbon cutted 2019. Uh, traditionally, that was a park that sat down kind of in this little culvert northeast side of uh, Cleveland. It probably 60 years so served a purpose, but it wasn't an appropriate spot for our park to be anymore. There was very little access to it. Uh, you had to cross some major streets and a train track to get to it, so that didn't really do us any good. Um, so we actually uh, worked with our partners over at NERSD. Uh, we actually naturalized where that existing park was for the last 50 or 60 years and brought all of the programmatic elements up and across the street um, and made that more accessible to the neighborhood. Um, and so, like I said, we did the ribbon cutting on that, I believe, last year. 
So uh, uh, simultaneously naturalizing an area and then relocating a park to make it more accessible to the community. And again, that was out of our first funding year and came out of the prioritization process and the methodology that we're applying to park investment. So can for I ask us, you about a certain park that I yes, used to you live can. here? Yes, you can. And I, I was always so intrigued by it. Uh -oh. It is in the Goodrich, Kirtland Park, or Asia Town neighborhood. Okay. And it's, it's around like East 40th, right on the lake. And it has like an old school like amphitheater built into the hillside. Kirtland. Kirtland, Kirtland Park. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what's the deal with that park? <laughs> Jessica's like, don't come and ask her about all your parks. <laughs> throw every park at me. Yeah, okay, right. I'm gonna answer for all 170 parks. Uh, uh, so actually that's one of our more utilized actually community parks. Yeah. Uh, when we have the roar on the shore over the, over the summertime with the planes and everything, I mean that place is packed. Uh, if you go over there in the summertime, um, there's always families and that's permitted all the time. We actually just invested, um, I, I forget the number off the top of my head, but we put a brand new uh, uh, play structure in there. Mm. Um, so we're trying to revitalize the space. The amphitheater is amazing. It really is. It really yeah. is. It could use a little TLC, but it's, um, it's definitely an asset that if we kind of wanted to prioritize and kind of maybe bring some activation into that space, um, it's just a really, really cool space. And there's yeah. actually a baseball diamond up over up above, right? Up above too, as well. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. lots to do in that park. Okay. Yeah. All right. We'll talk more parks. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> um, Julian Kahn, um, you're you're such an on the ground guy. I mean, you're constantly out talking to neighbors and just people living in the city. What's the what's the sense you get um, about um, from talking to people about what are the spaces that um, people do feel we have or that they have access to right now? What is it that people want and then what are they getting is there is there a difference there it's or you think a, it's pretty aligned well, it's or? kind of a weighted question to be honest with you um, I think that um, where it's it's a perspective shift you know um, in my neighborhood uh, you could either look at uh, vacant spaces as blight or opportunity right so it depends on where you are and what's extended to you um, and you know just in thinking about the the neighborhood that I live in and I actually work in um, you know, folks aren't necessarily registering on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? So a lot of folks aren't, I mean, we're made to flourish, at least I believe that. Um, but uh, a lot of people are just surviving. And so yeah, base needs, I mean, we need community. And in, in a lot of instances, there um, just aren't spaces where uh, community can be found at. So we have to be creative in certain instances and in trying to create spaces like that. Um, barbershops, beauty salons, Right. Those kinds of places, right? Communal gathering spaces, uh, places where uh, communal experiences are, you know, are shared or whatnot. Um, those can be transformative just the same, you know? So, yeah, I think it varies from place to place. But, um, yeah, the biggest thing is, is just space. Space where you can be your authentic self, where you can find yourself in, and you can see yourself within that structure and maybe even lend something to it to, to help create it, right? Yeah, and you were sharing something with me, I think, about the soul of Buckeye Park which yeah. is on Buckeye and like 118th, maybe yeah. some, something like that. And I think you were saying something like, you know, just times when that park is just real lightly programmed. So it's just like you're inviting people in, but you're not necessarily really telling them what to do yeah. is when you've seen it really thrive. Is yeah. that right? Yeah, yeah. So um, in Buckeye, I do something called the Buckeye Summer Soul Series, right? So we have a bunch of uh, 
Uh, thinly veiled organized an effort, to be honest with you. But um, it's uh, basically a series of uh, block parties with community resource fair elements, right? So we're basically hiding the medicine. And so at that, um, at that park, um, you know, the times where I've seen it most vibrant, where we've been able to really engage every act, like facet of, of the community is like the times when we haven't had security there, where it's just been community there gathering or whatnot. And, you know, case in point was uh, last year, our event stretched from maybe three o'clock in the afternoon to about maybe 11 o'clock at night, right there in that park, no security, nothing at all happened. Uh, hopefully I'm not jinxing that, but you know, the, <laughs> the reality is, is that that was, uh, I mean, for the folks that, that stayed, it was it was it was an amazing experience, right? Um, there were some issues uh, around, um, like presenting, uh, putting it together initially. Um, people weren't necessarily um, they, they were a little unsettled about not having security there. But once it happened, I mean, my goodness, we reminded ourselves that community was all we really needed to begin yeah. with. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, Nelson, can we kind of zoom out a little bit because we've been talking about the city, okay. um, but let's talk about the suburbs a little bit too. Obviously, a lot of people live in the suburbs in this region. Um, what's going, do you have a sense of kind of what's going on in terms of access and equity in the suburbs? You were talking to me a little bit about the national park. We are lucky enough to have a national park in this region. Absolutely. Um, and yet, maybe not everybody is accessing that in the same way. Can you talk a little bit about that or just, you know, maybe the metro parks, what's going on out there? Sure, sure. So maybe I'll speak to the access to the national parks. And I see some of our colleagues here. Um, Mr. Wilson, David Wilson from Land Studio, a couple of years ago, and you were involved with this too, Justin. We um, brought in this nature photographer, a gentleman named Dudley Edmondson. Um, a black gentleman, a naturalist, a photographer, and I remember him telling us a story about he's got these like telephoto cameras and he was zooming in on some dandelion and the park staff, the police said, what are you doing here? And he's like, I'm on the ground taking a flipping picture of flowers. And, and so, but he spoke to this idea that um, for <coughs> historical reasons, for reasons of trauma, um, African Americans have this tragic history with, with, with um, open space and there's a, there's a connection to slavery. And how do we kind of unpack that? And how do we work with um, organizations that run and manage parks to address that at the front end? Um, to have uh, staff that looks like the people they're trying to serve, to think about programming in a different way. Um, because these are our public lands and the percentage of visitation, we learned this from our partners at Gun Foundation and through the in our Cuyahoga Valley National Park, they're actively working on this, but for a majority minority city, our usage of our national park is actually declining. And the question is why? Is it, are we saying that um, folks of color don't need access to a way to improve their mental, emotional, and physical well-being? Um, I think that's something we need to talk about. There are assets out there, but we need to make them more welcoming and inclusive. Great. Yeah. Great. Um, okay, so it, I, t I told you guys the time was going to fly up here, right? Okay, so we're getting close to about the halfway point. And um, I would like to just, again, kind of go down the line and maybe bring it back a little bit to the personal. Um, could, could each of you talk about, in your neighborhood where you live, what's a, a space that you feel like works really well and it feels really inviting for all kinds of people? Um, that's the first part. And then the second part is, what is the one thing we could be doing that we're not already doing? Because I want to make sure we get some solutions talk in here, too, to, to be more inclusive and make sure that our spaces are more open to more people. 
So um, Chanel, could I, could I start with you? Yeah, um, I'm just gonna talk a little bit about the power of creating space um, and how uh, one of the things that Jessica didn't talk about that the city is working on is actual community engagement when we're creating neighborhood parks. When you work with people to create their space, there's a sense of power there. And to me, that is where um, the power of equity, equity lies. Like you're giving people the power to create their own space, to have a conversation about what they want to see in their community. Uh, the Trust for Public Land, we work with the migrant community um, outside of Seattle. Um, in this community, um, if you eat an apple, this is where you get your apples from. Um, and this is a community that does not trust the healthcare system there. Um, and so we've worked with them to create this park. Um, and not only did we create this park, they actually created their own organizing organization called Padres Padrinos. Um, and this organization is now its own community-based organization, um, and they're registering people to vote. They're talking about other health equity challenges in their communities. They're having doctor's appointments in their communities. And all the Trust for Public Land did is help them organize, raise money, and help to create this space. And I think those of us who are in the parks world, we need to do more of that. Um, and, and it's also about access too, right? And so we're already in this, in Cleveland, in this region, having conversations about can people get access to jobs that are in the suburbs? We should also be having a conversation about can people get access to the regional park system? Because if I can't get to a job in Solon, I probably can't get to the Rocky River Reservation. And that's a real conversation that we need to have collectively um, in this room, outside of this room, whatever room that, that we're in. Um, I will have to say today on my heart that I would say that my space is the Cuyahoga Valley National Park. Um, I have a wonderful person that works in my office that um, helped to protect land for that park, um, who helped um, protect land along the Cuyahoga Valley. Um, a lot of people know what I'm talking about, but you know his family needs us and his support right now. Um, and and that in that particular park, that park is special to me for many many reasons. Um, and I also just want to get a shout out to the national park for all they're doing when it comes to diversity and equity. Um, during the Cuyahoga 50, um, they had an amazing concert that was full of black folks, brown folks. Um, in one room, getting environmental education and um, vibing with one another. And that's the kind of uh, cultural approach that we need to take to the parks and outdoors. One that respects where people come from and what it respects what people want to see in their neighborhoods, in their community. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, okay, Julian, you're up. <laughs> yeah. And maybe you've answered this a little bit already. I don't yeah, know. A little this, bit, but yeah. I mean, I can expound on it a little bit. Um, I would say my favorite spaces are the ones that we create. You know, um, the Soul Series. To be honest with you, we uh, we started off doing a program in vacant lots, and so there were no shortage of vacant lots at the time on Buckeye, and uh, so it was just it, it was just transformative when people found themselves in those spaces. They started reimagining what that space could be. Just you know, a few hours, and those conversations would would find me like throughout the course of the year. I mean, this is just one day, you know, that we're having this event and I would find someone six months later and they're still talking, hey, you, there should be a flower garden over there. There should be a garden. We should do a community garden over there or something like that. So, you know, just creating that space. I mean, that's an option, even if it's not something that's uh, gonna be there in perpetuity or whatnot, but if we're even able to transform it just for a few hours, I mean, that can transform someone's whole idea of, of, of what their neighborhood can be and what it, what it should consist of. Yeah. You know, I, I'm thinking too about sometimes the spaces you least expect to be, feel like safe spaces are the one. Like I'm thinking about, um, 
the parking lot at what you know, the former Giant Eagle, now Simon's. Um, yeah. It's it's amazing. I you know I see people congregating there all the time, um, mm -hmm. including the guy who sells oils. Um, <laughs> right. I'm yeah, blanking yeah. on his name right now, yeah, but yeah, yeah. so sometimes the uh, spaces that are inclusive and that welcome people are not what yeah. you expect. They're, they're not what you expect them to look like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I uh, came across a tweet of my own uh, from about six or seven years ago. I used to have a store in the plaza. And uh, um, I guess I checked in at that Giant Eagle and uh, someone had commented on it and I said, oh, well, I'm not here to buy anything. This place is like a nightclub, you know? <laughs> and, uh, you know but yeah, it was a cross section of the entire community was in there. Everybody's got to eat, you know? So mm -hmm. it gave you some face time with some folks you wouldn't see uh, otherwise, so. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Jessica, how about you? Uh, touching on a little bit of what Julian's talking about, it's not necessarily always to do with the physical space. It has to do with the people who are activating it. Um, I think Lincoln Park uh, is a vibrant example of what happens to spaces that are activated when they're adopted by the community and by their residents. Um, that was true in 1920. If you go to Lincoln Park today, it's still true. So um, again, there's nothing particularly unique about that space. There's a pool that's open for 60 days and one playground, right? But, but there's a community that's adopted that space and owns it and activates it and programs it. So um, I would say Lincoln Park. Probably for the first part of my answer. I forget the second part of your question. <laughs> that was what, what's one thing we could be doing that, that we're not already doing to make One thing that we're not doing yeah. that we should be doing. Yeah. One, uh, that, that's kind of a no-brainer for me. Uh, we should be better at community engagement um, from the city standpoint. One way that we are kind of teeing that up is uh, our mayor in 2018 signed on for the 10-minute walk campaign initiative. That made us eligible for a technical assistance grant. Uh, we are using that grant uh, championed through the Office of Sustainability to develop a community engagement strategy circled around and, and, and really focused on our community investment plan for park space. At the end of the day, this is their parks, this is your neighborhood park, right? Uh, what we think in City Hall should go in there necessarily shouldn't be the only thing that's determining um, what that program space looks like. So mm -hmm. we'll be putting out, Chanel's on the planning team with us and has been invaluable. Uh, we've got some of our planners here, actually, who are on the team. Like I said, it's being championed through our Office of Sustainability. So we've got a lot of departments that are really trying to come together and, and come up with a strategy and work with a consultant to develop and institutionalize a community engagement strategy around our parks. So look for that RFP that's coming out. <laughs> All right. And Nelson. So we, we talked about this earlier, Justin. My favorite park is... Um, Fairview Park in Ohio City because it because of the meaning it had to um, my family and my relationships with the people in the neighborhood. So um, that was where um, Land Studio, formerly Parkworks, used to do pop-up ice cream um, socials, and it was a way to bring that entire neighborhood together. And and what's really beautiful about this park is that it, it's part of people's um, weekly experience. You know, you'll see, you would see. Seniors walking, um, you would see the homeless guys from the shelter just you know, sitting down um, getting some rest. Um, you see little kids playing, and it was a really beautiful cross-section of, of Cleveland. Um, the second part of your question, I think what we need to do is bring more voices into the fold around designing parks. I see um, Kent State and Seventh Hill, they're making our own space. Um, effort is phenomenal. It puts the power of designing and creating parks in the hands of young kids. And what mis one mistake we make, I think, as a city um, is that 
when we think about play structures, it's really easy to rally around building a park for a child, a young kid. But when you talk about building structures for 15, 16 year old black boys and girls, people get nervous. Um, and they, I think they need it most of all. And I just salute Seventh Hill and CDC for their work about um, showing these young people that they do have a say in how their built environment looks and works. All right, I'm Justin Glanville, reporter and producer for IdeaStream, and today at the City Club, we're listening to a forum on equity and access to public spaces featuring Nelson Beckford, Program Director for Neighborhood Revitalization and Engagement at the Cleveland Foundation, Jessica Fox-Gift, Manager of Parks and Recreation, Research and Planning for the Mayor's Office of Capital Projects, so so <laughs> Chanel Smith-Wiggum, State Director for the Trust for Public Land, and Julian Kahn, an organizer for Neighborhood Connections and curator of A Greater Buckeye. So we're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, or those of you joining us via our live stream or radio broadcast on 90.3 WCPN. If you'd like to tweet a question, you can do that too. Please tweet that to at the City Club, and our staff will try to work it into the program. So holding the microphones today are content and program coordinator Bliss Davis over here and uh, communications and outreach manager Julia Wong over here. May we have the first question, please? Good afternoon, everybody. Some hey, of your Ms. panel Brand. members up there, I know. <laughs> uh, I'm a community leader, advocate for the area that I live in. I've heard wonderful things about the parks that's around the city. However, my biggest concern is some parks in the hood. I'm talking about the Woodland Hills area. There's a park right up on MLK, Arthur Woods Park. We had just had a meeting about that the other day. What is being done about this? Now, my thing is it's okay for the residents to step up. I believe that's a big part of having things change. But what is the city of Cleveland doing for parks in the hood? 10 minute walks, some people are not able to walk 10 minutes. So what are you doing to accommodate people like that? Uh, I, I appreciate the question. I'd love to maybe connect with you after this and find out what you'd like to see in Arthur Woods specifically. We do have two programs right now coming out of capital that specifically address parks. Okay. Uh, one is kind of that large-scale capital improvement plan where we're real building parks from the ground up. We literally take it down to gravel and rebuild it. Sometimes it's not always supposed to be rebuilt where it was, which is what, earlier my example with Glenview. We relocated the park 50, 60 years ago. That was appropriate. Now it's not. But then we also have a, another program where we're kind of making these smaller strategic investments that are hopefully you know, increasing the overall condition and quality of a park. Um, you know, the 10-minute the walk is a goal. You know, it's definitely something that we'd like to strive for, but I hear you when I say maybe that's something that's uncomfortable for everyone to do, and 10 minutes for who, right? Who's walking that 10 minutes, and, and how are they getting there? So these are all valid questions, good things for us to think about at the city. Would love to connect with you and find out your thoughts on Arthur Woods. Uh, please, please, please. No, this is this is good. This is the stuff we need sure. to hear and we need to be aware of. So we appreciate that kind of feedback um, and, in forums and like this. Nelson, I think you wanted to weigh in too. Ms. Burns, thank you for that question. Uh, I want to also salute, related to your question, that um, the work of the St. Luke's Foundation, they 
um, helped install outdoor fitness zones at Woodhill Estates, uh, East End, and also um, Fairhill. And it's this idea of working with um, private organizations, nonprofit, who open up their space for park use. So I think there's another way, um, of course, working with the city, but working with a different set of partners to create privately owned public spaces. I think there's opportunity there that are accessible and welcoming. Yeah, sure, Julie. Yeah. So um, just to kind of clarify something as well. So the meeting that's in a reference here was actually a culmination of our programming, the Buckeyes Summer Soul Series programming at Arthur Woods Park, right? So in those uh, events that we hold there on a yearly basis, that's where we were cementing these experiences, right? There's um, no lighting here, so we had to abbreviate the time that we were doing the, the, the actual event there. There's uh, no water, although it's shared space with Baldwin Water Plant. I mean, we recognized as, as uh, residents that there were so many different uh, um, you know, opportunities to um, maybe engage folks around, right? So that first meeting was, uh, was um, maybe the start of, of just really cementing what uh, the community wants and needs from that. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's great to have a St. Luke's right around the corner, right? We can engage them after the fact once we start to understand um, what it is that we want. But we, we, we got to that point by programming and going there and doing things at that space. That's how we started to understand this place could be a lot better if we came together and, 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 and and found voice, communal voice. Next question. Hey, uh, Mikhail Baptiste. And I just want to say thank you for just having this conversation. And I just wanted to bring up uh, two places that I thought with you guys. Um, you know, Cleveland's really still segregated in some ways. And um, the Kingsbury Run and Sideway Bridge, I think two places that, you know, really, uh, I want to know what your guys' thoughts on it. And I just want to know. That's a large space right there that I feel like to this day is still abandoned. To this day, you know, we still have a lot of abandoned structures, a lot of abandoned things that make us separate. Mm. Yeah. So, thank you for bringing that up, sir. Um, Kingsbury Run was actually mentioned in this, in this 1920 study as opportunity. Um, I also, again, because there's so many great people doing this work, I have to salute the work of Burton Belcar and Jeff Sikolowski, they are doing some planning around um, Kingsbury Run and the Sideway Bridge. It's, it's really phenomenal if you've never been there. And Jackie Gillian has been um, curating stories about people's experience. So it's on people's radar and it's, I think it's gonna take, again, unusual suspects to bring the work to fruition. Um, and again, kudos to the CDC that sees this opportunity to make their neighborhood a better place. And one other thing, we learned this from Jeff, um, from Burton Belcar that a resident that lives in the central neighborhood in order to access a Cleveland Metro Parks has to take like two or three buses. What is, where's the justice with that, right? Mm -hmm. So. I think the interesting thing about both of these questions is that as residents, there's no way for them to give feedback or input to the city to say, hey, I live in this neighborhood. This is what I want to see for my community park. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we, we need to fix. They're like, there's no feedback loop to get this young man to Jessica, I guess you have your your council person, and that and that's and that's great. Um, but there needs to be a, a, a way for me as a community resident to advocate for my park and that information to get to people like Jessica, who's doing the work at the city. And I think this is valuable input for us to take as we are working on figuring out a community engagement strategy uh, with city parks. Right, like new ways to hear from people. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Any ideas about that? Like, what what are some what are some new ways we can? I mean, we do public meetings, and uh, you know, sort of those are the traditional ways that we hear from folks. But mm -hmm. what? How else can we kind of 
hear from people in the neighborhoods about what they want. So one of the things we're gonna we're planning to do this summer, uh, working with Recess Cleveland, that basically brings reset recess back to the neighborhoods, is using it as an avenue for people to give feedback on parks in their communities. And so it's participatory design. It's not this um, come to this meeting place and tell me everything. It's like how can we be active in our community? Um, the other thing that we're considering another strategy is actually using libraries as a place for to get feedback from the community. Many people in our neighborhoods go to the library, but can we have a park ambassador at the library? Can we have someone, uh, even just like a, a little uh, suggestion box at the library, like this, the city is thinking about investing X amount of dollars in your neighborhood park. What do you want to see in that community? It doesn't take something like this big robust idea because people are looking for someone to ask them, what do you want to see in your community? As soon as you ask someone that, they're like, they're going to tell you everything. And we just don't have a tool to that. Make that buzz happen. Yeah. <laughs> so we got a commitment from the library. Yay. <laughs> well, and to play off what Chanel's saying, that, that idea actually came out of the sustainability summit. That, that, that was a resident's idea to kind of come up with there was this disconnect between what a single resident wants and how they get that information to City Hall and, and where's that connect. So the idea was that the libraries um, could be these kind of hubs for these clusters of parks. And then we work hand in hand with the library to kind of get that information and feedback about when residents have questions about Arthur Woods or Kingsbury Run, they would go to their, their kind of represented library that had that cluster and then that would eventually come to us. So, I would also add observational data. You know, how is the space being used right now? Um, um, plan around the current use. Um, you know, watch the park for a while, see where the kids play, see where the seniors walk, and then you plan around it. That would be my suggestion. Mm -hmm. Meet them where they're at. Yeah, meet them yeah. where they're at, exactly. Hi, my name is Carlton Laster. I'm the Cleveland Metro Director for the Ohio Environmental Council. Congrats Chanel and congrats Nelson. Um, my question is, is I'm a lifelong resident of uh, the Lee Harvard area of Cleveland. And so in our area, JFK High School has been rebuilt onto a park, Frederick Douglass Park. And so they're not recompensating that park space that was lost because of a new school building at the old JFK site or any other place in Ward 1. And so I guess my question is twofold is, as we continue to close schools down and build new schools, prefer likely on uh, park lands, how are we recompensating those largely black neighborhoods with new parks? And then two, as we have schools that are torn down, whether it's my elementary school of Emil B. de Soze or Grace Mount Elementary School and all these other schools that have been torn down as vacant land, how do you then program those and make those incorporated into a park space and not just a grass field? Green school yards. Uh, yeah. So I think, I think uh, thanks Carlton, um, you know, one of the things that uh, we understand and that what we've done actually in New York City is built over 200 green schoolyards. So we've taken asphalt uh, playground space and turned them to green infrastructure basins or parks. And they're not open just during the school hours, they're open on the weekends and during the weekday. And what I really love about that program and that approach is that the kids design the park. And so there's an eight-week curriculum where we work with the schools and the students, and they work with landscape architects to design the park. And they also have to you know, present in front of an assembly um, of what they've designed to the other students in the school. And so they're learning these skills and their transferable skills um, as they are creating this space, and the park becomes open to the neighborhood. Um, 
That also brings up to the other thing is like parks are not a nice to have, they are a necessity. And when we're having conversations about when we're having conversations about economic development, we should be talking about parks. When we're having conversations about new schools, new libraries, we should be talking about parks, and parks should be seen as a solution for our community, not just, okay, we're gonna build this school and then put this little pocket park here. It should be a part of the larger conversation. So thank you, Carlton. Hi, I'm Eliza Reed. I had a question about weather. Uh, so yesterday in Cleveland was fundamentally different than today in Cleveland in terms of being outside, right? Um, and so I'm just curious about how these studies and these investments um, take into account winter months, rainy days, um, and, and sort of public spaces beyond just sort of the outside park, you know, where that fits in. So we actually have a resident expert in the audience, and I've learned uh, from David that um, we should be having more outdoor um, winter activities. Um, I don't know, do I have David say order? Let me do that. Do that. Uh, David, okay. he wants to put you on the spot. <laughs> Actually, David, please say something. <laughs> this, is your this is your work, David. Please. <laughs> Okay, thank you, David. Thanks a lot, Nelson. Uh, no, I, I think it's great that, to see that there's more and more architecture firms, urban design firms, and individuals uh, taking um, responsibility, sometimes literally putting the shovel in their hand to shovel sidewalks. I mean, frankly, I think everybody gets it. It doesn't make sense to put a lot of money into infrastructure if it's only used half a year, whether it's spike lanes or... Uh, retail environments that dip in the winter and lose money. So I think we just all need to do a better job of, of building that uh, experience into our design. And for some of us, it means just designing with winter renderings, just thinking about where the snow goes in the winter, uh, but just recognizing that it's worthwhile because uh, an ADA ramp is great, but if it's covered in snow and ice half the year, it's not ADA anymore. That's mm -hmm. it. Thank you, David. Lots of hands up here. Here we go. Hi, uh, my name is Christina. Uh, when I look at barriers to uh, accessibility and inclusion in parks and public space in uh, both my personal neighborhood, working with neighbors, doing organizing work, as well as working on vacant land reuse projects throughout the city, a primary barrier that has come up is the um, essentially institutionalization of policing uh, and police presence in public space. So when neighbors want to organize a block party, uh, for example, we have had to take that to vacant lots rather than uh, on the actual street, on the block, because willing, uh, neighbors were not willing to bring police into the neighborhood. That was a line they were not going to cross. Uh, there are, uh, in these processes, I've seen ways in which that uh, police presence is institutionalized and getting permits, um, funding, uh, having safety plans as far as funding. I would say for Julian and, and Chanel, both locally and nationally, uh, what practices are you seeing that could uh, enable and empower residents to create their own sense of safety? What that looks like for them uh, in their neighborhoods, whether that includes police or not uh, in public spaces? Yeah, well, I mean, for one, there's not an off the rack solution, right? I think uh, for each neighborhood, you're gonna have to tailor whatever that may be and what it looks like. Um, I would say above all, um, there's a very, there's a power in, in just relations, building relationships. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, 
you know, that may develop over time. Um, when I think about what we've done in Buckeye, I mean, it's, it's morphed and it's changed. The, the first uh, Soul Series that I, that I uh, put together on my street, uh, we had uh, folks from the land bank giving out parcel numbers and folks from Neighborhood Connections were running action clinics. My thought was people were going to come outside of their homes and buy back their entire neighborhoods, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it reminded me of uh, what Malcolm said when the bigger, biggest era of the movement was rallying and sleeping people around specific goals. Um, so. The, um, just creating community, I feel like, is the first step in doing that, right? And there are places outside of uh, the, you, you know, your own spaces that, that exist and, and really uh, are, are like lighthouses for community. And for me, it was always uh, uh, our neighborhood network night. That was where I found community. That was where we were able to raise our concerns and really coalesce uh, supportive groups or whatnot to move forward and, and turn these questions into actionable items, you know? Um, the, uh, what, I've found, what I've found personally is that uh, I've got my perspective, but when we're able to bring more perspectives in the room, then we're closer to the truth then, you know? And um, just creating that space, I think, is, is just deeply is necessary, to say the least. But yeah, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's gotta be tailored. So, so we've seen some examples of um, Cleveland police thinking differently about how they support um, park work, uh, parks in general in the fourth district uh, police station, police district, um, we actually, again, with St. Luke's, we were doing summer programming, and the first year was interesting. Uh, the police were there, um, and they essentially almost set up a perimeter around the, the play. And, and it, it, it was an awkward feeling, but we let them know about how that was um, perceived and how the optics of that. The next year, um, they did away with the perimeter, and we actually had them... Um, in the dunk tanks, um, serving ice cream, <laughs> serving hot dogs. So it completely shifted their role, and I think it shifted their dyna dynamics. So again, I think you have to work with that individual district and tell them um, that in this instance, they're not there as warriors, <laughs> they should be there as guardians. Nelson, what about the park that just opened um, in the Buckeye neighborhood? It is at Woodland Hills. Yeah. Um, it's the site of where a police officer was, was shot and killed, and now it's a park, and I think the idea is to program it where cops will be there actually facilitating events with the community. Is that a good model for? I think that's a phenomenal model. Again, back to Fourth District, um, that commander, Captain Salter from the Cleveland Police Foundation, they think like placemakers, they think like park folks. So this vacant lot w uh, was the scene of a, a murder of uh, Derek Owens, which was two, two, days, uh, two days ago, um, mm -hmm. his anniversary. And they saw the value and the meaning of that place, and they basically bought the lot. Um, the park is owned and managed by the Cleveland Police Foundation, and it's publicly accessible to residents. So it's, I think it's a really beautiful story, but also with the district, that commander views their lobby as a public space, as, as a social infrastructure, and he wanted it to be welcoming and beautiful, and he partnered with um, Harvey Rice Library Upcycle Park Shop to make the lobby feel a little more it's weird, inviting, if that's weird to say at a police station, but it, it's, it's a respect for the, the residents that use it. So I think it's individual relationships and pushing them out of their comfort zone. So unfortunately, we have to end right there. Um, I wanna thank all of you so much. It's been a pleasure sh uh, sharing the panel with you. Um, thank you all so much for joining us this afternoon. And um, yeah, we will see you next time, yeah.
Today at the City Club, we have been listening to a forum on equity and access to public spaces featuring Nelson Beckford, Program Director for Neighborhood Revitalization and Engagement at the Cleveland Foundation, Jessica Fox Gift, Manager of Parks and Recreation, Research and Planning for the Mayor's Office of Capital Projects, Julian Kahn, an organizer for Neighborhood Connections and a curator of a Greater Buckeye, and Chanel smith Wiggum, State Director for the Trust for Public Land. Our moderator is Idea Stream reporter and producer Justin Glanville. Special thanks to our City Club members whose financial support makes our work possible. To find out more about upcoming forums and how you can support the City Club, visit us online at cityclub.org. This forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.